Welcome to Book, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Libya Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. We are very proud to bring you part two of the Noir de Bar Indianapolis uh, reading that we recorded this past weekend. You probably, hopefully, tuned in for our previous episode where Clayton Lindemuth and James Ward Kirk kicked off the event. If not, hit pause, go back, listen to that, and join us right now. All right, thanks for coming back after listening to that great uh, first episode of Noir at the Bar, Indiana, <laughs> Part 1. Um, yeah, tonight's readers, as I mentioned um, in the last episode, Jed Ayer's longtime friend of this show, um, and he reads a story from Fuckload of Shorts, um, which is also an excerpt from the upcoming Peckerwood, uh, which you might imagine will be reviewed here on Booked in the upcoming weeks. Um, great to see Jed, as always. It's like between Jed and David James Keaton. Like, I see those people more than I see friends I have that live, like, in the neighborhood. <laughs> Is it just me, or was he a little more mischievous than usual last night, the other um, night? That's that's certainly that's certainly a possibility. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you may hear, if you hear someone yelling something very random out of the crowd, that's, uh, in all likelihood, that's Jed Ayers. <laughs> that's right. And then it was a clever switch, because um, traditionally, Jed... Is, is a very good MC for live readings, especially you won't know at the bar events. So once Jed was done reading, he flipped it around and decided to be the MC that introduces CJ, who was the MC for the rest of the evening. So um, CJ, like we said, set up the event, MC'd it, so did the whole thing, rented the chairs, all that kind of stuff. Did a lot of heavy lifting and then um, actually contributed by reading a story as well. And we should mention that CJ actually asked us to record this reading, which was an honor, because it's the first time someone asked us and we didn't have to beg, plead, do it on the sly, <laughs> um, pay somebody, um, what other things that we had to do. Yeah, endure all types of embarrassing things um, just to be able to bring you this great stuff. So, um, again, uh, an honor to to be thought of in that way by, by CJ, and uh, it just we're really thankful to have been a part of Noir the Bar in Indianapolis. Absolutely. All right, so without further ado, I think we should just jump right into this. Here is Jedediah Ayers, followed by C.J. Edwards. I forgot to mention earlier, the Booked Podcast is here uh, from Chicago, an award-winning podcast. Uh, they review books, uh, I think it's every, once a week, isn't it? Once a week uh, at, is it bookpodcast.com? Or? Awesome. And I listen to it regularly. Um, it puts me to sleep every night. No, I'm kidding. Um if you listen to these guys, they're great. They're very entertaining and a lot of fun to listen to. So if you uh, if you get a chance, check them out. Uh, our next reader is Jedediah Ayers, the tall bearded fellow to my right. Uh, Jedediah Ayers is from St. Louis. All his books uh, cannot be pronounced in uh, polite company. Uh, he has a, sh- a short story collection called A Fuckload of Shorts. He has a, it's a novella, right? Fierce Bitches, which I've read. It was one of the best books I read this year, actually. Um, and I'm not bullshitting on that. Uh, and he has an upcoming novel, uh, which should be out anytime, called Peckerwood. Uh, so without any uh, further ado, Jed and I are All right. Hey, thanks, Chris, and everybody else who may have been involved in getting uh, Noir at the Bar Indianapolis underway. Appreciate it. Appreciate uh, inviting me out. This is uh, something from my new book called Peckerwood. 
which I really hoped was going to be available tonight. And it's not. So I'm reading. Uh, I published a couple of short stories uh, a couple of years ago uh, that were actually excerpts from the book. And uh, this is one of them. It's called, the story's called 1998 Was a Bad Year. And it is available in a fuckload of shorts, uh, which I don't recommend buying at all. But if you suffer from certain, if, if I tell you don't do something and you must do it, then you can, you can have it right over there. Oh, thank you. You can have another. You can read it twice. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to read the whole short story, but uh, the setup here is that Terry Hickerson is kind of king of the douchebags in uh, southern Missouri. And um, earlier, he uh, had some kinky affair with a young college girl who turned out to be the sheriff's daughter. And he was really, really pleased when he found out about that. And he wrote up a very detailed pornographic uh, description of their tryst. And uh, it's just been published in um, High Society magazine. Anybody from the 80s, 90s remember High Society? <laughs> really, you know, like sort of sub-hustler class, yeah. All right, anyway, High Society played an important part in my development. And uh, he is just now finding out that his story, he's totally forgotten about it. His story's been published, and the whole town, the whole small town is talking about it, and his buddy has just found it. The sheriff was looking for him earlier, and he ran away from the sheriff, and now uh, his buddy is finding him in the bar, and he's just announced to the bar, my friend over here fucked the sheriff's daughter and wrote about it in High Society Magazine. Uh, so that's Cal talking, and Cal says, It's electric out there. Cal gestured toward the outside world. Everybody's talking about it. Blaylock's is sold out, and they're disappearing from all the liquor stores in a 50-mile radius. You, my friend, my hero, must take precaution. Please, find your refreshments, and then go underground. I'm sorry, finish your refreshments, and then go underground. Follow the drinking gourd and trust no one until they talk funny. Ah, thought Terry. Now it makes sense. He began to giggle uncontrollably. The thought of Sheriff Mondale finding the published accounts of his wild kid's kinky habits in the hands of every deadbeat loser in town made him happy. Cal joined him, and after an interval, even the bartender smiled and poured another round. After a few minutes, the wisdom of Cal's advice also crept in. The police had been to his house. They were probably looking for him now. Mondale was going to nail his ass. He needed to create some distance between himself and Johnny Law. Suddenly panicked, he turned to Cal. You got any cash for me? Cal shook his head. But such as I have, I give unto thee. He took a set of keys out from his pocket and placed them on the bar. Take care of her, amigo, and bring her back soon. But go now. Be smart. Terry slapped the keys off the bar and clapped his friend on the back. Cal was right. He hadn't thought this through that well. He really should take off for a spell. Wendell would be fine on his own for a few days, probably have time to time of his life, maybe even ditch his virginity. He found Cal's pickup outside and stepped into the cab. He was dimly aware of eyes on him, the famous outlaw who defiled the sheriff's little girl. He was still woozy and decided to skip taking a bow. 
the engine started right up, and he was shifting into reverse when he heard the hood smash. Startled, he looked up into the cold, dead eyes of justice. Sheriff Mondale's fist left a ham-sized dent in Cal's truck. Cal, Cal looked around and saw that they, indeed, had an audience. The gulch emptied as well as the grocery on the corner. The clerks had abandoned their posts and stood with their faces smashed against the glass storefront to see him die. Traffic stopped going in both directions and the whole thing played out half speed. Cal stood there in the doorway, guiltily nursing his beer while his best friend was about to die. The sheriff walked around the front of the truck while Terry sat still and dumb. When Mondale got to the door, Terry pushed the lock down. Mondale reached in the open window and pulled up on the mechanism. Terry slapped it back down, started rolling up the window. Mondale just pulled the glass completely out and it shattered on the pavement. The sheriff didn't bother opening the door. He reached for Terry, who slapped ineffectually at the giant hands and hauled his redneck ass through the window. Mondale's grasp swallowed up Terry and held him by both hands, then by both wrists. He slid Terry's left hand under his right arm so that he could hold Terry's right hand in both of his own. Terry started screaming a hysterical high-pitched scream. Please! No! 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 I didn't know! I swear! His fingers wriggled and writhed, but eventually were subdued. When the middle was secured, Terry took a deep breath. The snap stopped time. His finger made an unnatural L with the other, then dangled backward like a wet noodle. The breath leaked out of him and he sucked pathetically for more, but didn't find any. The process was repeated with far less struggling on the left side. Everything hurt. He was helpless as a like fucking metal cripple. Both middle fingers broken near off were taped to the ring finger. Everything was hard to do. Eating, dressing, bathing, driving. Forget about work, he couldn't handle a riding lawnmower, let alone a cat, which left him many idle hours. And that was even worse. He couldn't shuffle cards, tug his meat, and daytime TV was for housewives. Hell. Thursday night, Cal picked him up at 6, and Terry told Wendell not to expect him back all weekend. Cal was happy. Thursday was usually the best part of the weekend, and he regularly called out sick or just didn't go in to work on Fridays. They headed for the gulch and hit happy hour in the face. Each of them order a pitcher to Bud and three shots of tequila. Terry shared his painkillers and the weekend had begun. Two hours later, the cocktail of motor skill assassins had rendered Terry clumsy and he spilled the last of his second pitcher and cussed. This rate I'll be dry by Sunday. I won't let it happen, Kimasabi, Cal laughed. He grabbed his own pitcher and took it over to the next table. Charlie and Toby, the men sitting there, weren't happy to see them. Fuck off, the older one said as soon as Cal had settled and begun to pour himself another drink. Cal ignored him and drained half a glass in a single gulp. Hey, do you hear me? Fuck off. Like now. Get bent, Charlie. What'd you say? Go out back and play with each other quietly so the rest of us can finish a drink, said Cal. Toby, the younger one, stood up. Cal kicked him in his knee from under the table with a steel toe. 
The young man fell and smacked his face on the edge of the table, sending all the drinks in the glass that rested atop crash into the floor. Son of a bitch, cried Cal, seeing his unfinished pitcher go to waste. He reached across the table and smashed his mug on the side of Charlie's head. Quickly as he could, Terry made his way over and began kicking Toby in the ribs. If Toby managed to get to his feet, Terry'd be useless with his mangled hands, but it didn't happen. Terry connected the heel of his cowboy boot to Toby's temple and the youngster stopped moving. A horse kicked Terry in the kidneys and he collapsed with a whimper. The bartender stood over him with a well-used baseball bat. Get the fuck out now! Cal and Charlie stopped their wrestling and together dragged Toby's unconscious body out the back door while Terry followed, unable to contribute because of his hands. When they propped Toby up against some garbage bags, Terry made his contribution by taking out the last of his painkillers, which all three of them split. Charlie dry-swallowed his and then looked down at the man on, his, on the ground. Shit, there goes my ride. You can ride with us, said Cal. You are a white man, said Charlie. And I know a place. Oh yeah? Like a reasonable place? Reasonable place? How much? Charlie reached into his back pocket and took out his Saturday night special. We can make a stop first. Okie doke. The Mexican population was small, but growing minority in town, a fact that alarmed most of the citizens. They were a cluster that were rarely spotted outside the borders of Beantown, but they were large enough to have their own grocery store that stocked many tortillas and a rainbow coalition of salsa and beans. They also had their own video store with Mex titles starring big titty, big hip Mex starlets that were big on guns and mustache wax. They also had their own liquor store. The volume wouldn't be large enough to make a worthwhile score of the cash register, but there was a neighborhood Mex lottery held on Friday nights, and Charlie figured they could hit that stash tonight for enough to make a good weekend for the three of them in a brothel he knew outside of West Memphis. One advantage, Charlie figured, was that it probably wouldn't be reported to the police, seeing as how the lottery was unregulated. Rock on, agreed Cal, and Terry opened the window so that the breeze would brace him enough to be a getaway driver. They parked across the street. Cal put the car in neutral and pulled on the parking brake. Terry slid behind the wheel and rested one palm on top of the stick. I got this bitch, he said, confident on the adrenaline and racial superiority. Cal popped the glove box and grabbed a mask. He and Charlie strode across the pavement like it was the streets of Laredo. Charlie kicked open the door unnecessarily and the cowboys charged in brandishing weapons. With the windows rolled down, Terry could hear the muffled shouts and make out the flailing of arms between the windows posters for exotic Mex liquors and Budweiser, the king in any language. He finished, or he wished he were in there too. The testosterone surge had produced instant facial stubble, and he thought about what kind of whore he'd select for the weekend. It was taking longer than usual for one of these jobs, but that was to be expected, he figured, since there'd be a separate separate safe for the lottery money. Maybe the greasers were giving them trouble about it, denying and playing dumb. Fucking beaner trash, he thought. Give it up. A small contingent of civilians was beginning to collect on the sidewalk, somehow aware that something was going down. Spooky how the ethnics were connected like that. A couple of them even turned and looked at Terry, who extended his bandaged middle finger to them out the window. He revved the motor as the front door burst open and a masked Charlie emerged, 
pistol in one hand, grocery bag in the other, the door shut again behind him and was instantly painted red in a single blast. Charlie didn't even turn around. He sprinted across the street and began fumbling with the door handle. Terry stared at the door as the red paint began to slide down, effluvia separating and streaking the glass. The door was flung open again and a stout Mexican woman with a shotgun stepped over the headless corpse of Cal and took aim at the car. Go, 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 urged Charlie. Shit, 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 countered Terry. The car lurched and died at the same moment. Charlie was flung across the seat and into Terry's lap. He was missing the right side of his face. Shit, motherfuck! The car started again and Terry pushed Charlie to the other side of the cab. He clipped a parked car and had to use the back of his right hand to clear the blood and hair from the windshield. He succeeded only in smearing it before he had to shift again. The car lurched a second time but didn't die and he picked up speed while the back window exploded. A sharp pain in his neck turned warm instantly and he gunned the car. Reaching the windshield again, he scrubbed harder and cleared a window just large enough that he was able to register the streetlight before he struck it. Beckerwood out very soon. Uh, I guess we're doing we doing another drawing next. We're gonna wait. We're gonna wait to draw. That's what my kindergarten teacher told me all the time. After that first consultation with my parents. Uh, next up is gonna be C.J. Edwards, who organized this whole thing. So I think that deserves a round of applause. Um, C.J.'s got stories all over the place and plots with guns, beat to a pulp, pulp modern. And uh, one story that I heard him read in uh, Cordon, Indiana last year uh, was published in Palazzo with Guns and has just now, just recently been translated into Russian and published in Esquire magazine, Ukraine, which has got a huge circulation. He's big in Russia. Da. All right. Uh, and uh, is that what you're reading? I don't know what he's reading. It, no, he's reading, that was a cop story. And uh, he and David James Keaton uh, have uh, a friendly rivalry of uh, cop stories versus uh, killing cop stories. So you'll probably hear a, a cop get horribly abused later in the evening. Uh, but uh, C.J. Edwards holding up the cop end. This story is actually kind of a follow-up to the story that uh, he was just talking about. Um, and it's uh, kind of under consideration, again, with plots with guns. They, they didn't like parts of it, so they sent it back to me, and, and I was kind of curious as to why they didn't like that. But I, I, I changed it and sent it back to them, and I haven't heard yet if they're, uh, if they're still taking it. So, uh, The story is called Ghetto Justice, and uh, it is a police story. Uh, where is David? He's in the bathroom. All right. <laughs> well, he'll have, to, he'll have to catch up when he gets here. Uh, and you'll have to excuse, excuse me, my throat is, uh, is uh, kind of weak tonight. 
Um, ghetto justice. A sports car engine might whine when you kick down on the gas, but a Ford Crown Vic with a police package V8 growls, lowers itself like a fighter, and punches you back in the seat. You can hear the pavement-eating snarl even above the scream and wail of the siren. My boot mashed the gas hard. I felt the vibration from the engine slash up my leg and rattle my balls. The Buick Regal in front of me was listed on the hot sheet as a fresh steal from the last 24 hours. It had caught my attention when it jerked into an alley as my patrol car had turned on the Hamilton Avenue. Instead of playing it cool, the driver spooked at seeing the police car. The Regal fled into the cross alley. An electric-fueled dump of adrenaline flushed through my veins and stabbed down into my stomach. My radio's mic flapped at my left shoulder, responding to the potholed alleyway stretched behind what passed for homes along East 10th Street. I keyed the mic. 2134, rush traffic. 2134. Control, I'm in vehicle pursuit. 10th and Hamilton, alley north, eastbound, Brown Buick Regal. Indiana 927 Adam Charles Lincoln. Attention all cars, 2134 is in pursuit of a brown regal eastbound from 10th and Hamilton. Overgrown bushes from abandoned yards slapped the sides of the car. Branches caught in the spotlight and screeched across the roof. Stray stones and bricks tugged at the tires, bouncing and jarring my hands through the steering wheel. 2134, that plate comes back to a stolen vehicle. Yeah, no shit. The Regal cut its nose south into another alley. I relayed the change to control. Dust flowed, the fleeing, excuse me. Dust flowed from the fleeing car like smoke from a souped-up muscle machine in some cheesy adventure flick. The blare of siren wrapped itself. The blare of the siren wrapped itself around the red and blue flashes of light, flushing through the cloud of dust. I framed the rear end of the Regal in my windshield, still locked on target. It bucked high off something hiding in the flying dirt. I braced for impact. It felt like taking a tackle from an NFL linebacker at full steam. The Ford shuddered and cringed. My right hip sledged into the console. The grip of my Glock ricocheted off my hip bone. The Regal shot out of the alley and turned the wrong way on Michigan Street. The cars coming at us veered to either side, tapping horns and flipping birds. Our speed was rising. I felt the adrenaline tuck lower in my gut. Eastbound Michigan looks like a black male driver. I'd seen half the driver's face when he barreled out of the alley as he flipped a black hoodie up over his head. Dumbass was going to wreck. That hoodie had to cut his vision in half. I fell back a couple of car lengths. If he took out a car head on, I didn't want to stack up on the back of him. He started swerving across the lanes, even though I dropped dropped back, his eyes were still visible when they flashed in his rearview mirror. That's when the gun came out the driver's side window. Fuck! The wheel wrenched in my hands as I swerved to the right. My fender almost clipped a beat-up Chevy pickup with metal scraps and old tires. Another truck parked too far out into the street brought me back in line with the Regal. The shot sounded like one of those poppets you give kids on the 4th of July to throw on the ground and toss at a wall to explode in harmless little snaps and cracks. I almost didn't hear it over the engines, tires, and siren. Shots fired. My asshole clenched tighter than a zip tie. 
and my hips tried to climb up out of the seatbelt. The radio crackled as control relayed the warning. As the driver craned back for another shot, the Regal drifted left and ripped through the red light at Sherman Drive. The patrol car blocking traffic there tucked in behind me and took over calling the pursuit. The low, gravel-toned voice let me know it was Ed Bricker, an old-timer who'd passed 25 years on the job when I'd still been a fresh-faced rookie. He was old school, but hadn't slowed down much. His front fender locked itself in my left-hand side mirror and refused to shake loose. Still eastbound from Sherman, his voice was calm, almost bored. The dulled syllables settled my nerves, letting me concentrate on not catching a bullet. Before the driver of the Regal could let loose another wild-fingered jerk shot, a stray, and, a stray black and white pit bull trotted off the sidewalk in front of him, cringed at the hurtling hulk of the Buick, and came apart as the front tire sliced him through the middle. It's funny what your brain takes in under stress. I could have sworn the pit looked up, thinking he would have to take, thinking he would, he should have taken the alley, and maybe, just maybe, he shouldn't have run away from the useless redneck owner of his in the first place. Fur and blood slapped the front of the police interceptor. A strip of hair-lined skin clung to my spotlight, flapping like a flag in a cavalry charge. A laugh bubbled up and out of my chest. Holy fucking shit. I kept laughing as two more shots slapped lead projectiles across my hood. I cut the wheel back and forth. Ed and another car behind him juked and jived along with me. Not that it made any difference. By the time you hear the shot, the bullet is already in you or past you. Still, maybe it would throw off the next one. Mr. Runaway Regal circled back north, then west. Back across Sherman, another hard left on Dearborn. A street and, a, a street and block recognized by its rotting houses, corner-crouching dope slingers, and hollow-eyed whores. Now the streets we pass seethe with red and blues, flashing out promises of an ass-kicking when this fucker bailed from his stolen ride. In Marion County, where the jail was full and crime was up, a car thief cracking shots at the popo might get, a f might get a few months in the slammer, but most likely the prosecutor would plead into theft and laugh if asked about an attempted murder charge. Time served would probably be a gift. The ass-kicking he would, prob would probably be the only sentence he received. At night in Dearborn, dumb shit hit the brakes. If I hadn't been giving him some room, I might have been out of the chase for good. The driver's door slung open and I watched his skinny frame fly from the car as the Regal bounced over a curb, slewed across the yard and broke itself on an elm tree. Branches shook, leaves rained down on the steaming crumpled hood. Its horn jammed and blared out an off-key howl. Driver bailed, running eastbound. Ed enunciated his words with precision. Black hoodie and jean shorts disappeared between two doubles shedding crack cracked leaves of gray paint. Who the fuck wears jean shorts anymore? I punched the seatbelt release while my tires were still rolling, one foot out the door as the shifter slammed into park. My door was left open, siren and lights still advertising their presence to the street corner hoods and gawkers. An extra set of keys snapped to my belt rang out with every jarring step of 180 pounds plus another 20 of gun, gear, and vest. Calls went out as Ed set up a perimeter. This stupid fuck was as good as caught. He committed a critical error when running from the police. To get away, 
you got to bail in the first couple of blocks before there's enough backup to zip you inside a perimeter. I'd, last, I'd lost sight of the runner and took it slow around the corner of the first double, Glock up and out. Sprinting after this fucker was a good way to catch one in the face. Two grime-faced kids, I couldn't tell if they were boys or girls wearing the same shoulder-length grunge blonde hair, stared at me as I cleared the corner. The smell of something old and grease-fried leached out the open curtain-free windows. A cigarette-scratched voice screamed at the two kids. Junie, Junior, get your asses in the house. If I have to tell you again, I'll have them police lock you up. Parenting at its best. In the backyard, I stood in the weeds at the edge of the alley and called for a canine. It was no good to keep on if, if I wasn't sure which way he'd run. Turning in a half circle, I saw good citizens slouched on porches, beer or fifths of cheap liquor clutched close. They had all seen which way the hoodie had ran, but none of them were about to volunteer anything. Even if I'd asked, they'd just lie. Royce Rivera was the canine officer who ran our district, and I heard him say on the radio he was two blocks away. I hit in and told him which address I was behind. He screeched up 30 seconds later, stepping out with his partner, partner's leash draped across his neck and shoulders. Royce surveyed the yards. Where'd you see him last, Rob? He was all business. Right through there. I gestured with my left hand, cutting the air between the two doubles. My right hand still gripped the unholstered block. Control, I need one officer with a shotgun, a rifle up here with a suspect bailed. Royce went back to his car as Mark Spooner hustled up with a shotgun held vertical. Royce's car rocked and we could all hear the snarls and barks of his canine partner, Raider, a four-year-old Belgian Malinois. The door popped open and Royce clipped, leashed a collar. Raider's feet hit the ground and the barking stopped. His jaws hung open, tongue lolling. All right, let's go. If either of you see him, don't wait for me. Shoot his fucking ass. Royce issued a command to Raider, and the dog snuffed the air with a tail cocked, pulling us into a half-trot. It didn't take long for Raider to lead us to a two-story with, with cracked brick walls. The back half was boarded up, and a side door had been pushed open with little resistance from the lock. Raider let loose a harsh stream of roaring barks at the cracked door. Police department! Royce shouted over his partner and then shoved the door open all the way. The four of us, Raider on point, squeezed inside the abandoned house. Mold and old dead sweat slashed my nose. Inside was a wash of cigarette butts, crumpled beer cans, and broken bottles. Outside, dogs on chains barked their complaints at our invasion of their territory. Raider pulled Royce inside. Mark was next with the shotgun, and I brought up the rear. Once inside, I could hear the sound of running water. Raider pulled us forward, and the water became louder. Guns up, we followed, eyes skipping from room to door to hallway. At the end of the hall was the bathroom. The door was shut, light coming from under a crack at the floor. Roaches crunched under each step. Police department. Royce's second announcement was stepped on by Raider's barking. Inching down the hall, Raider's teeth raged our gun barrels search for a target we searched the empty bedrooms as we went until we were left with the bathroom door at the end of the hall it was clear now that the sound of water was coming from the bathroom like someone running themselves a bath what the hell mark lowered the shotgun as roy stepped in front of him raider growled some more and strained at the leash saliva splattered the wall 
Royce pulled him back. Rob kicked that door. A kick was hardly necessary. The door caved so easily I almost stumbled into the room. Gun still up, I pressed back against the wall. A skinny black man in his 20s sat shirtless in the tub. Water gushed from the faucet. Frothing soap swirled around his legs. Fear sketched his face, shading the corners of his eyes, chalky pale. His hands made washing motions under the water and soap, bu and soap bubbles. Pupils lost in wide whites blinked once, twice, and a third time. What? What's going on, man? He said. Raider surged forward. His teeth flashed and made loud clacks as they crashed together with each bark pushed past lips peeled up and down. The black nose was just shy of the white porcelain. Condensation formed and disappeared as Raider's breath brushed the tub's surface. Show me your fucking hands! Royce's command overtopped the barking canine. Hands! Hands! Your fucking hands! His gun was out now. Raider's leash cinched around the fingers of his other hand, turning them white. What's going on? The man in the tub scrubbing his arms with soap and water, his eyes slipping in a constant rotation of gun barrel, gun barrel, razor white jaws, gun barrel, and repeat. What's going on? His mouth seemed to be stuck on the same track. It was, so, it was so insane that a small doubt actually sprouted in the back of my mind. Maybe this house wasn't abandoned, all evidence to the contrary. Maybe this was just some poor fuck who happened to match the general description and, un, and was unlucky enough to be selected by fate and Raider's nose to suffer the consequences of someone else's popping ghetto shots, popping ghetto shots, jo ghetto joyride. I'd seen crazier shit. And when you see crazy on a daily basis, sometimes a suspect's most illogical denial sounds almost plausible. Rob, I knew what Royce wanted to know. Was this the guy? None of us could see the gun, but a blue hoodie was, hoodie was stuffed between the toilet and the tub. It was the exuberant repeat scrub, wash, scrub of the same body parts that threw off the doubt. The complete absence of steam indicating the water was cold tallied itself on the list of our mutual observations. Yeah, it's him. Put your fucking hands up. Royce let the leash slip forward another inch. The man's hands rose, trailing suds. He leaned back at the waist, and I could see the tops of his jean shorts and the swirl of water. Get out of there. But, but what's going on? We were all thinking the same thing. He probably dumped the gun. If the prosecu prosecutor pussied out on the auto theft charge, this, this thug turd would end up with a simple resist plea down to a misdemeanor fleeing charge. He would do less than 24 hours in jail for jacking a car and capping shots at a few coppers. The only justice this son of a bitch was gonna get would be right here in this room. Royce didn't have to look at me. We'd been through this before. His eyes ran to Mark, who'd only been, this, been on the street a little over a year. Some guys were screamy about, squeamish about this sort of thing. Not that I ever lost any sleep. There was nothing about it that was morally problematic for me. Ghetto scum brought pain and suffering to others and got what they got. It was a fucking biblical, an eye for an eye, or in this case probably an arm or a hunk of thigh meat. A grin splashed across Mark's face. Technically, the gun could be in the water with our two-bit hood friend. Royce nodded and dropped the leash.
Raider lunged as the doomed thug reared up and out of the bath. He scrabbled for anything to rescue his ass from the white fangs coming for him. There was a scream and a splash. Raider sunk his bite into a leg just below the knee, yanked the man back down into the water. Then the man did the wrong thing. Even more wrong than all his action that had led him there to that bathroom. He tried to fight the dog. <laughs> Don't fight it, you dumb motherfucker. When you fight a police dog, instead of a few puncture wounds, you get vicious tears. A dog's back teeth work like scissors when they get worked up and shake their heads back and forth with a mouthful of flesh. Blood squirted, saliva hung in pink strands from Raider's mouth. Soap and foam, water and blood and screams stirred themselves into a froth salted with our calls of, Good boy, Raider, good boy! Raider pulled and bit and chewed forward for a better grip. Tendons parted with a sound like cracking knuckles. When Raider's jaws sliced downward with a thrashing tug, the kneecap slid sideways under the skin and rolled around to the side of the leg. A cringe shivered up my spine and I tried to ignore the sounds. There was another big splash as Raider pulled the man's entire body down and out of the tub. Royce let him have another couple good tugs before he started trying to get him off the butchered leg. Raider, off! Off! Giving the dog's collar a hard jerk upward in a choke, Royce rewrapped the leash around his other hand. Blood splattered his uniform. Son of a bitch! He yanked and pulled harder on the collar till Raider's air was almost completely cut off. Finally, the dog let go of the pulpy mess. Good boy! Skirting Raider, who was so worked up he'd bite most anything that moved, Mark and I grabbed a wrist each and flipped the man onto his belly for the handcuffs. With a click-click, it was over. I looked down at the moaning figure. He was hurt pretty bad, but I didn't bother him. After six years with front row seats to what assholes like him did to each other, this wasn't shit. If anything, I doubted it would even slow him down much for the next time, and there would be a next time. Turds never learn new tricks. It was the same story over and over. Pull a cheap-ass caper, run from the police, and take their lumps. Gravel ground under my boots as I walked back to my car. I caught some radio traffic that one of his rounds, that one of the rounds dipshit had slung at us ended up in a 12-year-old girl. The adrenaline high of the last few minutes melted off me like a blowtorch put to work on an ice sculpture. The same disinterested eyes that had ignored me after the suspect bailed from the regal now riddled me with accusations. The men clenched fists and spit off their porches, swigged their drinks and spit again. The women glared openly, some cursing the police loud enough for us to hear, but not loud enough to cause us cause enough of a scene to go to jail. They walked the line between irritation and disturbance with the skill of rough school diplomats. Sweat had soaked through my t-shirt. I could smell it, the old and the new, floating up from my chest, curling fingers of stench to rub the ultimate failure of the day in my face. It made my ballistic, my ballistic excuse me, ballistic vest feel like lead. I walked over to the Regal and wrote down the VIN number on a notepad. The gun, a cheap-ass high point 40, lay on the floor of the driver's side. I didn't touch it. The registration was in the glove box and told me the car's owner lived one street over. They might even have been one of those shadows staring stones at me right now. 
They're, they'd reported their car stolen, but even returned undamaged, they'd still hate us. Hate us for locking up their man or their delinquent kid. Hate us for beating up the dope-dealing cousin or uncle. Hate us for the bullet-pierced 12-year-old that the, that man who stole their car had shot. They hated us, and it didn't take long working that neighborhood to hate them just as much, and for the same reasons, just in reverse. My fist balled up and punched the hood of my car. Fuck. There would never be justice for the thug. Once he was stitched up, he would have a cool story and wicked scars to add to his rep and impress the girls who actually hung around with his type. If the girl died, he'd plead to excuse me. If he if the girl died, he'd plead to involuntary whatever bullshit, and if she didn't, he would get even less time. We'd tried to even the score for her, for the car owner, for us, but now there were two ambulances headed to Wishard Hospital. Things were even all right, but not the way we had wanted it. I got in my car and found an empty parking lot to finish my paperwork. After I marked back in service, I took my next call. Maybe there would be justice for the next guy. Maybe. But I doubted it. Um, I think we're going to take a, like a five or ten minute break. Um, if you guys want to refresh your beers and then uh, be back here in a couple minutes. All right, you just heard Jedediah Ayers and C.J. Edwards. Um, you know, I, I've never, I'm trying to think, like, you know, I've read some, like, mainstream stuff, short stories. I think C.J. Edwards may be the only ones I've, I've ever heard and or read that were uh, from the cop point of view. What kind of people do we surround ourselves with? <laughs> um, David James Keaton. <laughs> yeah, it's always, like, from the criminal. Uh, so yeah. uh, some great stuff in there. Um, police dogs, man. Dude, that sounds just horrible. Yeah, I never, never thought really about thought that, of, but yeah, <laughs> but I've been thinking about it ever since. And every time I see a police dog, uh, not that I come into contact with police or police <laughs> dogs very often. Um, well, now if I, I know do, because the, 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 I know my first instinct would be like, I'm going to fight this son of a bitch. But mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe he's changing my tune. You can't win. You can't win, man. You can't win against the dog. That's right. All right, and Jed Ayers um, again reading an excerpt from Peckerwood. Um, very excited to review that here shortly on the uh, on the episode. You know what the great part is? We could just skip through that whole part when we read Peckerwood. That's right. I like how Jed, <laughs> he was trying to adjust because he's a tall guy. He's trying to adjust the microphone stand so that it was like tall enough to reach him. And he just pulled the top half right off. <laughs> Instead of like trying to like take a few seconds and fix it, he just did the entire reading holding half a microphone stand in his hand. Yeah, not many people could pull that off, but... Uh... With with Jed, that that seemed okay. So. It looked like he was holding a pencil or something. It was so tiny in his hand. So that uh, so that's kind of it for part two, dude. How many hours do we have to drive to get this thing? It was like four and a half for me, three and a half for you. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot this of was, this was, and we did it round trip, uh, broken up only by uh, reading and dinner, um, which was uh, very cool. I will say this: if we, uh, you know, when we went to Corydon, it was no problem. Everyone's like, oh, we'll just go to Waffle House and eat. Somehow you get in Indianapolis, and making a decision on food becomes the most difficult thing in the entire world. It did become a little problematic. I'm going to agree with you. It was like we went to a restaurant that only served appetizers because it was like 10:30 or whatever time it was. I don't even understand what that means. And then there was this awesome-looking restaurant that was completely empty, that I think may have been closed, but we're not 100 percent sure of that. Well, it's attached to the place we were in that only served appetizers. Yes. Yeah, I, I, so. the whole thing was really confusing. 
I guess the whole bottom line is if you're going to go to Indianapolis, bring your own food. Or have a game ne- plan, like have reservations or something. <laughs> next time, well, I don't think anybody really expected that in our, our group that was trying to eat afterwards. But I will say this. Next time we're all just going to pile into my car and eat some like potato chips soda. That'll be dinner. <laughs> we'll be prepared. Uh, like tailgating? Like, yeah, like 14 of us just hanging around eating like Lay's potato chips. All right. I was that hungry last night, dude. That was like a legitimate plan. Like, if this doesn't work out with food, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> All right, before we just keep rambling on about snack foods, I think we should wrap it up for tonight. So uh, be sure to join us t- uh, tomorrow for our next uh, edition of the Noir at the Bar Indianapolis. Until next time, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Olivia Snudden. Keep reading. 